This is Fintech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest fintech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the Fintech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed fintech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Fintech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson, creator of Fintech Takes, and we are just delighted to be recording this particular podcast live from the exhibit hall at Fintech Meetup in sunny, semi-sunny, beautiful uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. As always, I am joined by my partner in crime on this endeavor, Jason Mikula, publisher of Fintech Business Weekly. Jason, good to see you in person. Yes, it's uh, you showed up this time last okay. time you left me hanging. I, I need to like keep using that joke. That's fair. That's fair. Just run it into the ground. No, it's I love when we have very special episodes. Great to be here in Las Vegas. Amazing event. And we actually have a guest for the first portion, John Lear, the president and co-founder of FinTech Meetup. John, thanks for putting together this amazing event. How's everything going so far? What have you been hearing around the conference? Well, first of all, Alex and uh, Jason, life goal achieved, actually coming on your podcast. So that's a big tick in the box. Yes, sir. You know, it's been absolutely fantastic. This is our first in-person fintech meetup. As I think you both know, you both participated. We did two virtual fintech meetups, but everybody wants to get back in person. And, you know, the response to the show has been terrific. So we're live from the ARIA venue. Got 3,000 incredible leaders right across the fintech banking payment spectrum. You know, what, what I really like as well about this event is that we've really also focused on very specific communities. So things like we have credit unions represented, community banks. We've got a big focus on women in fintech. And, um, you know, the overall sentiment that I've heard is people are just incredibly optimistic about the future. A lot of excitement, a lot of conversations happening. And obviously, you know, we're using technology to really connect and get everybody participating in this meetings program of which we'll schedule 30,000 meetings on site, which uh, so far has gone very, very smoothly. Well, I I have to say, I went into the giant ballrooms that you have set up for those one-on-one meetings. And, uh, you know, you go into the app for anyone who's not here at FinTech Meetup, go to the app and it tells you where your meetings are set up and you have meetings with all these great people. And it's like, okay, your meeting is at table 787. And you look up and you're like, oh my God, that's so many tables in here. And so you're kind of wandering through and it sounds like the sort of loudest, most energetic, exciting cocktail party ever. And everyone's sitting at these different tables and you sit down and you honestly get to have really great conversations. They're kind of, you fit into 15 minutes, so you sort of cut through all the fluff and you just get right to the meat of it. It's been delightful. I've really enjoyed doing it. Jason, have you gotten any meetings? Yeah, absolutely. And I love, I mean, it was great as a virtual event, although eventually that Zoom fatigue sets in. I think there's something totally kind of the opposite about doing it in person where it becomes energizing instead of like, oh, I've been staring at a screen for six hours in my home office. Yeah. So yeah, definitely a very vibrant, energetic atmosphere that, that, I think hopefully encompasses the the optimism for the future despite recent events, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I wanted to maybe just bounce around for a couple of minutes between the three of us on just sort of themes or ideas that we've been sort of hearing or seeing at the show. I mean, one that I have heard a lot kind of referencing SVB and recent events, and we'll talk more about that on the podcast, obviously, but, you know, I was doing a, I was moderating a session on the main stage actually with the the CEO of MX, and he was um, talking about just like trust in banking mm-hmm. as kind of like a core theme. And one of the observations that he had was that there has been this sort of weird, almost like barbell effect, where trust has sort of 
fled to either side of the market, meaning that like very small community banks are in some cases actually picking up share and picking up deposits. Yeah. There've been, a, I think, a number of those bank CEOs who've been like kind of vocal online about like, yeah, no, it's actually going really well. And then, you know, Bank of America is sucking mm-hmm. in a whole bunch of deposits and these other systemically important financial institutions that, you know, people know won't fail. And it's kind of the middle where the trust is sort of eroded. And I don't know, I found that to be a, a theme trust generally that's kind of cut across a lot of the conversations that I've heard so far. Yeah, I mean, building on that in a slightly different direction, you know, I moderated a panel on bridging the chasm between TradFi and DeFi. Wow. Uh, and, and frequent listeners or readers will probably know I would call myself, generally speaking, a, a skeptic, a lot of the activity in the in the crypto and DeFi ecosystem, but yeah. you know the point that the participants in those panel that panel were making was around you know the continued opportunity to focus on building during the downturn, the opportunity to create you know quote unquote trustless networks, trustless protocols, etc. You know I'm still not sure I'm convinced, but you know despite the happenings of the past 12, 18 months, there does still seem to be people very dedicated to building in that space. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I mean, that's, it's true with fintech too, right? I mean, I think crypto has been a much more sort of violent example of that sort of, uh, you know, drop in enthusiasm and funding. But it's true in fintech too. I I did a panel where it was a, a lot of fintech founders in the audience. And we were sort of talking about how you can sharpen your message and cut through the noise and how you can have successful interactions with VCs. And, you know, all of the advice that was given on that panel was basically just like, you know, strangely, maybe somewhat counterintuitively, now's a great time to build, right? Because a lot of the sort of hype and the things that were sort of causing signal errors, if you will, with like what you were building and are we actually getting traction or is this just a rising tide is kind of lifting all boats without us having to do anything? That's now gone. And like you have to be more disciplined. You have to sort of have a really good foundational reason and customer problem for what you're trying to build and what you're trying to solve for. But I think that that same sort of sentiment of, now is actually a really good time to quietly build was present in sort of the fintech conversations I was seeing as well. John, what are you hearing? You know, you know, Alex, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I interviewed Steve McLaughlin from FT Partners on Sunday. Yeah. Um, he keynoted for us. And I think Steve captured it brilliantly, which is, you know, there's a lot of, if you read the press and some of the, the commentary, there's a lot of doom and gloom about things like down rounds and the venture environment and startups. But actually, you know, if you take a much longer term perspective, Steve's view is, and I completely subscribe to this, is we haven't even scratched, barely scratched the surface yet of the possibility of what fintech can actually achieve. Yep. You know, if you look at, for example, underbanked, that's still a problem that hasn't been solved. If you look at, you know, the digitization of whole industries and communities, that hasn't actually been properly addressed. So, you know, we have a long, long way to run yet. And I think hearing it from someone like Steve, who's 20 years, started uh, banking fintechs back in 2001. Yeah. You know, he's gone through a lot of cycles and I, I think that should all give us a lot of positive energy for the future. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that's a really great point. I mean, people latch on to the headlines. So, I mean, you know, most recently, well, there have been a lot of most recently, but, <laughs> you know, Stripe raising it at 50 billion and, you know, people sort of interpreting that as some sort of, you know, catastrophe or sign of collapse. And the reality is every asset class has seen valuations decline, you know, almost mechanically with rising interest rates. Yeah. And yeah, in the public markets, it happens transparently, you know, high liquidity, you can see it day in, day out. And not that you don't have headlines there as well, right? I mean, we talked about a firm recently. Yeah. But I think when you see, you know, a perennial fintech darling like Stripe have its valuation cut in half, of course, it's going to drive headlines. 
you know, the real question, Alex, to your point about discipline is, you know, are you building a business with an economic model that's sustainable across cycles? Or have you been building a business where you are dependent on zero interest rate environment, easy access to capital? And as that has shifted, you know, quite rapidly, you know, are you sort of, the tide has gone out and you're swimming naked, as the saying goes. Yeah. I think we're going to see that separation, or we are seeing that yeah. separation now in real time. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I said on a panel I was on yesterday that I, I actually think the best lending company of the next like 20 years is going to be built now, yeah. right? And it's because, you know, and Jason knows this very well and very painfully, when you're building a lending company, like you end up getting kicked in the teeth, whether you want to or not. That's just like the nature of the business. You might as well do it now, right? Like rates are high, access to capital is restricted. It's like a very difficult environment. Maybe, you know, sort of credit quality conditions are deteriorating, but you have to take your lumps anyway. And so I actually think that taking them in this environment where literally there are no excuses, there's no tailwinds at all. Like this is a great environment to really build in, right? It's like, you know, physical fitness training on Jupiter, right? Like you're going to be just jacked any other planet that you go to. And I, I think that's kind of the mentality that you have to have if you're building right now. So John, I was just going to say, Jason, as well, you know, you mentioned about, you know, Stripe getting its valuation cut in half. Mm -hmm. But what we didn't hear a lot of in the press was actually Revolut had a very significant upround as well. You know, they're 34, 35 billion now. I mean, at some point, you know, maybe Revolut becomes more valuable than Stripe. You know, that would be a narrative and a story yeah. that not many people had heard about. Well, the other, you know, caveat that I I'm always aware of is when you see that headline number, you don't know what kind of structuring yeah. went into that round, right. right? So, I mean, the rumored Vero round that I saw the term sheet for, it's like, yeah, the headline number is 1.8 billion. But then if you dig into the structuring of the penny warrants, et cetera, the implied you know, actual valuation attached to that number is substantially lower. So I'm always a little bit cognizant that the headline number you see is an incomplete picture at best. This is the yeah. Mikula rule that we've defined uh, here. Uh, there's on there's several podcast. Mikula rules, I think, now. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so, like, if you try to, like, you know, hide these things in that headline number, Jason will find you and he will call you out. John, give us a, a last wrap-up on FinTech Meetup this year. We're coming back next year as well, right? Are yeah. you going to Europe? When are you going to Europe? You watch this space on Europe. Yeah, there'll be more news to follow up on that. But, yeah, so uh, we wrap up tomorrow and then we're in Vegas March 3rd to the 6th. Happens to be my birthday. What a great way to kick it off. Yeah. 2024. We're going to be at the Venetian Hotel. You know, one of the things that we're going to be announcing pretty soon as well is a whole different approach to how people think about co-locating their own events at Fintech Meetup. Mm. What we really want to do is to co-opt the whole industry together to come together, come to our event, put on your own events, mm -hmm. and we'll help you facilitate and actually do that. So we're, we're awesome. really excited about all of that. Awesome. I'm going to block my calendar after we finish recording. Brilliant. Yeah, and you can bring your birthday presents for me as well. Yes, yes. We'll, we'll be sure to do that. We're shopping right now. John Lear, thank you, sir. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. All right. What are we going to talk about now that John has left us? Well, that's a good question. So I think perhaps we should touch briefly on a small news item or a couple that you, you may have not seen, but worth discussing since the last time we recorded, yeah. mm -hmm. which is the utter and complete collapse of trust in the banking industry. No, I'm just kidding. Wanted to chat just a little bit about SVB and Signature Bank and First Republic and Silvergate and Credit Suisse. So I'm going to do like a really quick summary yeah. of 
these news stories as we've seen them unfold over the last, what has it been, like two weeks now? Yeah, two weeks. I was attempting to take a vacation. I think you did an excellent write-up or actually multiple write-ups, which meant that I did not need to like go in-depth on it. So thank you for I that. was just trying to protect your vacation yeah, time, man. You. I, I appreciate I, it. I know the internet signal wasn't great and I just didn't want you to have to try to log on. So you were already on Twitter way too much. So just to sort of summarize, I think really these are like four kind of very different stories, right? And the fact that they've all happened somewhat within a narrow window of time is maybe creating this sort of macro narrative. But to unpack it a little bit, first we had uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And that's kind of the, been the biggest one that everyone's been paying attention to. Obviously, we all live in the sort of fintech VC Twitter ecosystem to a degree if we're in fintech. And so that was very big news. I think in that particular case, as I, I broke down on my newsletter, and I won't hash this out too much, was really just sort of a simple example of an asset liability mismatch on their balance sheets. That is a problem that is not exclusive to SVB. There are quite a few other you know, community and regional banks. I think, Jason, you wrote about this in your newsletter that are potentially facing sort of a similar challenge. But it was that combined with a significant outflow of deposits, combined with the herd mentality mm-hmm. of VCs and folks that are connected on Twitter, which led to about $42 billion in deposits disappearing over the course of one day, mm-hmm. that, that fateful Thursday. And that's what ended up sort of shuttering Silicon Valley Bank. So I think that's like one very clear story that, while it does have broader ramifications, we'll talk about those, it is kind of stands on its own as an example. Now, immediately before that, we also obviously had the failure of Silvergate Bank. And you know, Silvergate, I think, was somewhat similar directionally. And I think Matt Levine talked about this in Bloomberg of, you know, if you bank the crypto industry and then the crypto industry has a disappearing amount of, you know, different things that they're able to count as assets. Well, suddenly banking the crypto industry doesn't look like quite such a good deal. And, you know, there's been a lot of reporting about just the outflow of deposits from crypto exchanges that were banking at Silvergate. And that functionally just made it difficult for them to exist as a bank. So a little bit less of the asset liability mismatch, I think, in the case of Silvergate and more just a function of all of their deposits disappearing because the industry collapsed. Related then to Silvergate was the failure and closing by the FDIC of Signature Bank. And Signature Bank, based out of New York, also another one of the big banks that was you know, providing services to the crypto industry. Barney Frank of Dodd-Frank fame was actually a board member at Signature Bank, which is interesting. That one is a little bit strange, to be totally honest. The reporting that I've seen on the failure of that one, which was announced over that same time period that... I think it was uh, on a Sunday. It, yeah, so it's like the Fed just sort of came out and said, yeah, so some stuff has happened. And by the way, Signature is also closed. And that one was seemingly from based on the reporting I've seen more of a concern on the part of regulators in the management of mm-hmm. the bank and just concerns that they were not managing the bank well. I don't think that it's an accident that they were heavily concentrated in crypto. I do think there is sort of a broad view within the regulatory environment these days that banks just really shouldn't touch crypto at all. And we might need to sort of wind the clock back a bit in terms of undoing some of the stuff that happened during crypto's boom. So I do think that was potential sort of contributing factor, but it does seem like the sort of overriding factor was that regulators were just not confident in the management of this bank. And then finally, again, I think pretty clearly disconnected from everything else that's happening, we had Credit Suisse. And Jason, I don't think you're an expert in Swiss banking. So I'm aware that Credit Suisse has had 
a sort of long history of problems, mismanagement, including yeah. like fairly salacious spying scandals. Yeah, yeah. I'm less familiar sort of with exactly how that compounded and then blew up over the course of the last week or so. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm with you. I sort of compare them in my head a little bit to like Wells Fargo, just in that they're sort of chronically mismanaged, right? Or like Deutsche Bank, or there are these yeah. banks that are large and just can't get their shit together, basically. And I think that from what I have seen, or just my reading of the tea leaves is, as SVB and everything that's been happening in the US kind of shook investors' confidence in mm-hmm. banks, maybe sort of generically, that ended up shaking you know, Credit Suisse maybe a little harder than other banks. And it just sort of became clear that they weren't going to be able to continue to move on. Uh, I think last I heard was that was it UBS who mm-hmm. was going to be potentially acquiring them for about $2 billion, which uh, I don't know a ton about the assets of the banks involved, but that seems like a relatively low number. It's better than $1. It is better than the $1 that SVB UK was sold for to uh, HSBC. So, I mean, Jason... Having sort of witnessed on vacation and now that you're back, all of these things happening in a relatively quick sequence, what are some kind of key takeaways that jump out to you? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of different threads here that I think are interesting to pull on. I mean, of this set of five failed or nearly failed banks, I definitely have consumed and had the most time to think about like the SVB story. Yeah. And I think, I mean, a couple of interesting points there you know, one, they certainly were a significant outlier when it came to heavy reliance on uninsured deposits, right? Top one percentile of banks as far as the composition of their liabilities being uninsured deposits. Yeah. What's interesting, and I'll admit I did not know this, my understanding is prudential regulators treat uninsured deposits basically largely as sticky as insured deposits, maybe like 90, 95% of the weight you would assign to insured deposits. Now, clearly, that is not how the situation at SVB unfolded. Yeah. And, you know, at this point, it's hard to say, you know, how that generalizes or does not generalize to other you know, non-GSIB institutions. You know, obviously, First Republic has run into issues. Yeah, A friend of mine sent me a tweet of people lined up outside a branch in Brentwood in Los Angeles, <laughs> I think on a Sunday, which I assume it wasn't even open. Yeah, good luck. Trying to get their money out. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's an area that is ripe for discussion around, you know, and this is happening now, right? Like, okay, should this FDIC limit be increased from 250K permanently, temporarily, only at certain institutions, everywhere. And my understanding of the current situation is, you know, the government, FDIC, has explicitly backstopped and guaranteed all deposits at SVB and Signature. But Treasury Secretary Yellen specifically said this was not a every bank system-wide thing. Yep. On the one hand, you have this discussion of, you know, moral hazard. If we are guaranteeing all deposits, is that going to encourage an unacceptable level of risk taking? Because, you know, banks and their depositors know that there is a explicit backstop. You know, on the other hand, depositors aren't the only stakeholders of these banks. You have equity holders and bondholders. And as appears to be the case with SVB, you know, they will likely be entirely wiped out. Yeah. So one could make a counter argument that even if you explicitly guarantee all deposits, you know, hopefully 
the equity holders and bond holders are acting to constrain the level of risk that those banks are taking. I think on the deposit side, the idea of you know having my money, whether it's $10 or $10 million, is that as that consumer or business, I shouldn't need to have to parse the balance sheet and the P&L yeah. of the institution I'm putting those funds in. Yeah. And I think the you know the, the problem or the risk if we don't you know if we don't do something about sort of the current setup of deposit insurance is you know absent people doing their own due diligence and, yeah. and understanding is SVB safe is First Republic safe whatever funds are just going to gravitate to the already largest most systemically important institutions your poorly managed Wells Fargo yeah. your Chase your Bank of America because those are you know explicitly too big to fail, right? You know, have a tighter regulatory regime. And it's like, listen, I don't have time to understand if my community bank is safe or not. I'm just going to go bank at Chase. Yeah. And that's going to work at cross purposes with some explicit policy objectives of the current administration, current regulatory regime around promoting competition. So I think there's a lot of sort of tough trade-offs that are going to unfold, yeah. you know, in in Congress. Although I'm skeptical anything will ever get passed, yeah. And in you know the OCC, FDIC, the Fed around what is the right balance across stakeholders and across policy objectives. Yeah. No. I mean, I think I think everything you just said is exactly right. And I mean, they are tough decisions, right? Because you have to sort of think about things that are temporarily true, but not universally true. So in the case of, you know, bank runs, I mean, like, panic is irrational, right? And one thing I think is really important to remember about this current sort of crisis in quotation marks that we're going through, and maybe not even a crisis is that it's not at all like 2007, 2008, right? Like one thing that's like critically different here is there are no bad assets sitting at the bottom of this, right? The thing that blew up SVB was a asset liability mismatch but the assets were treasury bills, right? They were like long dated treasury bills. Like those are going to get paid back. Those are the safest assets you can possibly get. It's just that they reached for extra yield by getting long duration bonds rather than short term bonds. That was a stupid risk management decision, but it's not like there are these toxic mortgages sitting on the books just waiting to be sort of taken over. So I think that's a really critical difference. And I also think that, you know, on the other hand, so maybe that's not something to worry about or overreact to, but I also think that like, the nature of, and many people have pointed this out, bank runs in a digital first era Mm -hmm. is just fundamentally different, right? And obviously, SVB is a bit of a unique animal. VCs spent the weekend completely flipping out, and that did not do anyone any favors. And I think that, you know, commercial depositors in Iowa at an ag bank are going to act differently in lots of ways. However, you don't have to go to the branch, right, to get Mm -hmm. these deposits back, certainly not on a Sunday, but like you can do it digitally, you can do it in real time. We're going to have real-time payments infrastructure more ubiquitous in the United States relatively soon. And I think it is worth sort of wondering about social contagion rippling across social media and digital banking making it easy to withdraw funds quickly. Those are things that, you know, rightfully, I think the FDIC really hasn't ever had a ton of reason to contemplate Mm -hmm. until now. And questions about FDIC insurance, what the cap should be. I personally am kind of intrigued by the idea that we could have different caps for business accounts versus consumer mm-hmm. accounts. And 250 seems still in the ballpark of reasonable, at least to me with my salary for <laughs> an individual. But um, for like a business, you know, I mean, I, I guess I had never really interrogated the idea that 250000 actually doesn't get you very far mm-hmm. if you're, you know, paying 
50 hundreds people. of employees. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, and like, I know, again, VC businesses are a little bit different in terms of their cost structure and their deposit structure than your average small business. But even, you know, reasonably successful average, you know, small, medium business, you know, it's not unlikely that they might have more than $250,000 in a bank account. And to your point, I think one sort of critical expectation that we need to carry forward is I do not believe these products should be something where it's on the end consumer to be evaluating the balance sheets, right? I mean, the whole purpose of a licensed and regulated bank account is that it's not crypto, right? Like it's not do your own research and then YOLO your way into these accounts. Like it's supposed to be the opposite of that. And if I have to be checking not just the balance sheets, but the footnotes in the balance sheets to see the held to maturity bond ratios and be doing that math, like I had to come up to speed on all of that over the last couple of weeks. And let me tell you, it was not easy. And it hasn't been easy to explain to like, non-banking nerds in my life, I don't think that's a future we want. This whole situation with SVB reminded me of a conversation I had with Kia Haslett, who yep. has been on your show before. Yep. And this was a couple of months ago. And she was saying something about you know, why there wasn't more bank M&A activity. And it was because of uh, you know unrealized losses on assets. And I she, didn't, she I didn't told t- me this too. Yeah. And so she, she totally called under, this, yeah, she called this very yeah, early. Exactly. I didn't, I, admittedly, at the time, I didn't like totally understand yeah. what she meant. Yeah. And then, you know, as SVB unfolded and I read about it, I'm like, oh. This is what she was talking she about. Meant. Yeah. I mean, to your point on speed, and, you know, currently most of the U.S. is still in this ACH wire world. Yeah. Particularly for like the larger kind of transactions. Yeah. You know, the previous largest bank failure, or I guess still largest bank failure, WAMU, was something like $16 billion over 10 days, yeah. right? So yeah. just a substantially slower pace than the $42 billion in essentially one day at SVB. Yeah, I mean, a couple of other areas I think are interesting to watch are, one, you know, the opportunities and risks of increased automation. Yeah. So I'm interested to see what kinds, and I know there are already companies that kind of work in this like deposit sweep or deposit management space. Yeah, yeah, like Introfy. That's the one I was going to mention. Yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, that's interesting as a way for end consumers businesses to diversify. So increase their aggregate insured amount by using the sort of middleware layer. Yeah. I am curious what unintended consequences or risks and these always crop up, right? Yeah. If all of a sudden we're sort of automating moving funds in between a bunch of different partner banks, yep. you know, how does that impact that sort of deposit flight risk? Yep. So that's one thing I'm very interested to see how it develops. Another, and maybe I'm veering into like tinfoil hat territory here, <laughs> but I know generative AI has also been something on everyone's radar oh, yeah. as, you know, the hottest topic of the moment in VC and Silicon Valley. But you know, a certain amount of concern about the potential to generate misinformation. Yeah. Right. So you can imagine like, oh, okay, I made a you know, a fake video or a fake speech that's purported to be the head of the FDIC yeah. or the head saying of saying that the we OCC. absolutely will allow the, all these banks yeah. to fail or whatever. And, yeah. You know, I'm gonna tweet that out and to your point, it's like, you know, panic is irrational. If somebody yeah. sees it, and particularly with the current incentive structure, you know, there's no upside to leaving my money at SVB versus moving it to Chase, but there's a whole lot of downside right. in the worst case scenario. And so you can start to imagine, you know, whether it's bad actors seeking personal financial gain or even geopolitically, like, I think we're not prepared for what's coming, yeah. basically. Yeah. 
No, I, I totally agree. I mean, now you're scaring me yeah, because sorry. that I think is a very good point. Also, you're a great content creator because you managed to cross over SVB and generative AI. So like check off that bingo card. That was spectacular. But no, I think it's a really, really good point. And as I sort of contemplate like what's next and how do we solve these problems? You know, one of the things I wrote about in my newsletter was this idea that, you know, maybe we need to think about disentangling some of these things, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, SVB for all of its sort of amateurish, I would say, mistakes on the risk management side when it comes to constructing their balance sheet and making sure they weren't taking duration risk or mismatch risk on their assets was, you know, they did build a really good business, Mm -hmm. right, on the part of, you know, trying to create great products and just a great sort of ecosystem for VCs and tech founders to Mm -hmm. be a part of. It's just the back-end balance sheet that kind of got screwed up. And it kind of made me wonder, like, what if we had a lot more of those front-end providers, Mm -hmm. which is kind of what fintech companies do, right? They just focus on the customer and they really like build very tailored products to them. And on the back-end, we just have these big like diversified balance sheets and just a bunch of like bass banks Mm -hmm. that sort of don't really do much on the customer side, but are really big, much bigger than the bass bank we have today and have these balance sheets that can absorb all of these different risks and sort of balance these things out. Because again, like the problem was concentration risk, right? The problem was not the like inherent risk they were taking. It was just, it was way too concentrated. And if you could balance that out across a lot of different types of SVB type companies and have a more diversified balance sheet on the back end, I wonder if there's a way to sort of evolve our overarching banking infrastructure to better account for the sort of value propositions that people want on the front end while making sure that it's sort of safe and sound on the back end. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the I'm probably just parroting another Matt Levine talking point. We all are. But, but the idea of like, okay, like SVB is diversified because it has a lot of VCs and a lot of startups and a lot of companies. But if they're all consuming the same information and responding to the same cues, yeah. maybe you have you know 50,000, 100,000 customers, businesses. But if they're all behaving similarly due to that high concent- sectoral concentration, yeah, yeah. then ultimately you're not diversified. Right. And I mean, to your point in the piece that you wrote about, like, could Bass have prevented this? If you had a world where, you know, you start to disaggregate this value chain. Yeah. And so you have, you know, a larger, you know, Bass bank with a balance sheet that is providing loans to those farmers in Iowa and through a different fintech front end, that venture debt and that consumer mortgage, et cetera. Yeah. Presumably, you achieve better diversification and mitigate some of that concentration risk that was, you know, it was the problem at SVB. It was also the problem at Silvergate. D- totally different industries, but like same, you know, conceptual, same fundamental problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's really a point of like concentration is good when it comes to delivering value to customers and it's bad when it comes to risk management. And so kind of disconnecting those two, I think, is an interesting concept to to kick around. Speaking of things to kick around, do we have another story, Jason, we want to talk about? We could segue into a quick bit on European bass. Sure. I mean, I know we're not we're not in Europe yet. John promised, I heard a promise for... for yes next year. Well, didn't he say free tickets and airplane? Like he'd send a private jet for us. So yeah. John, you're on the record. It's, they call it a PJ on succession. So <laughs> John, John, if you're listening to this, send, send a PJ. Yep. No, this was a story from the last couple of months and, and there have been a couple of different points. I mean, I know we've focused a lot in what we've written, what we've discussed on the banking as a service landscape in the US. Yeah. It looks quite different in Europe for a number of reasons. One, the existence of the EMI, the e-money license category, and then two, the relative 
relative ease of getting a bank charter. Yep. And in the last couple of months, you've had a couple of stories pop up with very similar themes to what we've seen in the U.S. with you know Blue Ridge's consent order, you know stemming from like AML, KYC, bank secrecy failures. So I mean, one Solaris Bank, which is a fully licensed bank based in Germany that operates basically a banking as a service model that would be comparable to like a, kind of like a column or a cross river. Sure. You know, has had multiple issues over the course of the past couple of years, including having a special auditor, I believe from PricewaterhouseCooper, like assigned to basically be at the company. Oh, wow. Assessing their remediation. Yeah. And ultimately, the German regulator, Boffin, has basically said, much like Blue Ridge, you cannot onboard any new clients without our explicit permission. Similarly, Railser, uh, formerly Rails Bank, yep. in the EU operates through an e-money license issued by the Central Bank of Lithuania, uh-huh. uh, well known as you know a very thorough jurisdiction when it comes to monitoring AMIS. <laughs> and similarly, they were ordered to cease onboarding any new clients due to like serious and repeated AML failures. Mm. There's been some other similar activity. There was a another EMI that I'm honestly forgetting the name of right now, Lithuania-based, that operated a lot of crypto on and off ramps, yeah. as well as like Forex. So very high risk for fin crime, money laundering, etc. That was also similarly positioned, you know, can't onboard any new clients. Sure. And then Somewhat related, N26, not a BAS provider, Neobank, fully licensed. Yep. Similarly, has had a lot of management trouble recently, drama, as well as AML issues, including a hard cap on the number of, of customers that they can open accounts for. So, I mean, I guess these sort of regulatory issues, not purely an American phenomenon. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, I don't know nearly as much about the European BAS market as I do the U.S., but they are strikingly similar to the things that we're going through right now. And I guess a question I have that I don't know if we have an answer to yet, but I think we're starting to gather data on is, it makes sense to me when the fintech companies that are working with all of these BAS providers make mistakes or move really fast and are sort of trying to break things and kind of taking shortcuts. It's strange to me when I see that behavior replicated or mirrored by the banking partners that they Mm, work with. mm -hmm. And I guess the reason it's strange to me is that it seems like the incentives that those banking partners have are very different, right? I mean, they're not typically, although maybe some of these companies in Europe are, but most of them are not venture-backed or trying to like Mm -hmm. grow really fast. Or if they are, they at least have to balance that against you know, we have a banking charter, like we have banking partners, we need to sort of take that responsibility seriously. If we don't, then it's a sort of systemic risk to our business, right? And I guess I'm surprised by the number of these banking as a service companies that almost sort of adopt the ethos or the attitude of their customers in Mm. terms of like, yeah, we should move fast. And, you know, we can cut those corners on AML, and we don't need to have this program in place. And I, I don't know. I mean, Jason, what do you think about that? You you obviously did a lot of reporting on Blue Ridge and some of the other Bass banks in the U.S. that have been going through these growing pains. Like, is it growing pains? Are they forgetting how to do basic banking things? Like, what's happening here? I mean, I think in the U.S. market, there has been a bit of a different dynamic, specifically with the middleware providers right. that don't quite 
in my opinion, don't quite exist in the same way in the European market yeah. due to the ease, you know, ease of getting a bank license and EMI category. Yep. I think in you know in the U.S. context, there is, as you mentioned, kind of this incentive mismatch where you know if you're a venture best middleware, you want to grow really quickly. You're going to have a more risk on appetite than perhaps your banking partner does have or should have. You know, my sense of what has happened in some scenarios is, you know, the middleware provider sort of telling the bank partners and telling the fintech something like, you know, don't worry, we're handling the compliance piece. We've got to let everyone, you know, move quickly, deploy these programs, you know, at speed with lower cost. And, you know, I think the reality is that perhaps those obligations were not always promises, obligations not always fulfilled upon. Yeah. So to your point, I mean, I am a little bit surprised that, you know, you're seeing these problems in the EU where essentially it's like vertically integrated, sure. right? Solaris is the bank and then it also is the technology layer. Yeah. And to your point, it's like, well, this is your license and your business on the line. Like, yeah. If you're not managing these risks prudently and appropriately, like you can no longer onboard new customers without regulatory permission. Yeah which is a very challenging place to, to be in when you're trying to build and grow a business. So I do, you know, in the U.S., I think because of the structure and some of the incentives in play, yeah. it's a little bit more understandable that this happened. Sure. I do think, you know, from what we've seen so far, it also seems like a lot of those risks sort of accrued in a, you know, a handful of banks slash handful of platforms. Yeah. So you can sort of see this sorting of like, okay, maybe... Bank Corp or Coastal Community, like too many hoops to jump through. They say it's going to be too, you know, too expensive. Yeah. And people gravitating to, you know, sort basically partners with less restrictive, less cumbersome plans to get to market. But yeah. then to your point, like cutting corners, risk concentration. So yeah, it, it seems like both in the US and in Europe, there's a bit of a recalibration yeah. of like what is the appropriate operating model what is the appropriate amount of risk oversight from you know from bank partner as well as regulators sort of responding to these risks that have been building up in the system yeah i mean i i think that's a great way of putting it and the other sort of larger question that i have about all of this is as we look at like what's the appropriate way to do this i think that a lot of you know criticism has been directed over the years at us regulators about not making it easier for fintech companies yep. to get a charter or to have some sort of sandbox that they can build it within from a regulated perspective without having to have a bank partner. Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting because I've been, I think, generally in agreement with those criticisms. I think that is sort of a failing of the U.S. regulatory system, an understandable one, but still sort of a failing. But this kind of makes me question it in a strange way, because I think one thing that the U.S. has that's kind of unique, maybe in a way that I didn't totally appreciate before, is Starting a bank, starting a de novo bank, mm -hmm. and uh, I know you've written about, you know, Varo's most recent term sheet is another thing we can uh, we can talk about if you want to. But like for the most part, if you're starting a de novo bank in the U.S., it's like a very boring thing to do. Like it's hard, it's boring, and like you're signing up to get into a boring business. So to your point, there's almost this like self selection where anyone who's trying to do anything cool or move fast 
goes a different route and doesn't get a de novo charter. And the only people who are left getting de novo charters are ones who just want to have a, a bank for some you know community that they're a part of that they think they can scratch out a good profit in, but it's not a venture-backed business. And like VC dollars have not been spent trying to get into the regulated system is kind of the, the takeaway, at least until they get much bigger and they acquire their own charter. However, you know, if you switch that around, and I think Europe is an interesting test case in this in a way, and you make it easier for these companies to get a regulated, you know, charter or get some access to sort of the regulated system early on, I do wonder if you're sort of exposing yourself to more risky behavior or just like different incentives. Because like if you're a VC-backed business and you can get a, you know, charter, they'll allow you to start providing banking as a service services to other companies. You're within the regulatory perimeter, but your incentives are very much not boring. They're like growth and focused on returning a big valuation to your investors. So it becomes a very different animal. And I think that, you know, that's something that regulators should be very thoughtful about moving forward is what types of risks are we inviting to come within the regulatory perimeter? And when are we doing that? And there is a certain elegance from a regulation standpoint. I'm not sure fintech founders and VCs would agree with this, but there is a certain elegance in you can do whatever you want as a bank, but like we have one throat to choke and we know exactly how to talk to you and whatever you want to do with other partners, like here are the rules you have to play by. And so not that, you know, Bass in the US doesn't have to evolve. And, you know, we, I think we absolutely need better guidance and rulemaking and things around that. But there is a certain elegance in like being able to keep that risk a little further away. So I could see the argument for that. It's interesting. My perception or understanding of how the EMI license as a category has played out in the UK and EU is primarily as a stepping stone, right? So if you look at a lot of the companies that began, you know, mostly sort of neobank kind of companies that began life on that license, I'm pretty sure nearly all of them have or are in the process of becoming fully licensed banks. So I mean, in the UK, Monzo, Starling, Revolut is trying. Yep. And in the EU, Revolut does have a bank license. Yep. Also in Lithuania. <laughs> Although I think, no, I take that back. They also have one in Ireland. Yep. So it's interesting. On the one hand, it's like, okay, does that mean, you know, from a business model perspective, like the EMI license is sort of incompatible with a sustainable business model? And so yeah. that may or may not be a bad thing, yep. right? If it's like, okay, you can get into market you know, quickly and relatively easy with this sort of junior bank license where, you're, you know, you're not holding the deposits. Those are, you know, held elsewhere. So you don't have that exposure. And then, you know, as you develop your, you know, product proposition, product market fit, etc., you know, make that transition into having a full bank license. And, you know, the, I guess the analogous version in the U.S. is, you know, start as using a partner <laughs> bank. Yeah. And then potentially, if it's compatible with your business model and economics, buy a bank, or which is the more common path, or potentially you know do the de novo, which is what Vero and, and a very small number of other companies have done. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think that it's interesting to analogize between the two. And I, I think the other sort of large-scale question it brings to mind for me, and then we can move on, is I think that it also sort of makes me wonder, like, what level of sort of access to the regulated banking system do you need to have a really profitable business model? And, you know, I think the historical thinking, at least in the US has been, it sounds like it's somewhat similar in the UK and in Europe, you know, you have to be a fully licensed and regulated bank to get access to all of the advantages that allow you to have a really, really profitable business model. 
I do sort of wonder, though, sometimes if that is only true because we've made it true, right? Because fintech companies have decided on the product front, dealing with customers, we're not going to charge for any of these things. And we're going to try to sort of make these things free, or we're going to try to cut out bank fees and sort of differentiate ourselves that way. And so it sort of paints you into a bit of a corner if you compete with banks on price to a point where you've locked your business model into only one path to profitability, which is you yourself becoming a bank that's then going to be maybe a slightly less profitable version of the bank you set out to compete with originally. And so I do think, and we're starting to have these conversations, at least in the US, fintech companies, I think, need to be very thoughtful about what is it that you're charging for and how are you designing your business model? Because if you set down a path where the only realistic chance of success is to get inside that regulatory perimeter and become a bank, you are dramatically decreasing your odds of being able to be successful long term because you know most most fintech companies aren't going to become banks and probably can't become banks and might not be allowed by regulators to become banks like that's always going to be a narrow path to victory whereas you know i think giving yourself more room on the front end in terms of how you design your business model might open up other paths that don't necessarily depend on becoming a bank mm-hmm. at least very soon yeah, i mean i you know in some imaginary world where the U.S. legislative branch functioned, I think it would be very interesting to sort of disaggregate or uncouple the different activities that exist under a banking license, right? Yep. And we saw some efforts to have, you know, fintech charter sure. for the prior administration. You know, my understanding is that it basically would require an act of Congress to empower the OCC to sort of issue new types of charters, sure, yeah. whether you call it a fintech charter or payments charter, or national lending charter, etc. You know, do I think that any of that is likely to happen? No. Right. Do I think that that would be an interesting way to try to sort of provide greater flexibility in business models and increase competition. So if, whatever, if a firm could go and get a national lending charter as opposed to needing to partner with banks to originate those loans, that's going to improve their economics, etc. Don't think it's likely to happen, but it would be, it's an interesting thought experiment. But do we have time for one more? Yes, we do. And I'm just going to put you right back on the spot because oh, I'll introduce yeah. this story, but you yeah. need to explain okay. the story, which is Cash App World. And I saw you write about this a little bit in your newsletter. I will admit to having skimmed this section a bit. And so I felt like I needed to parse it way more to even to contemplate like what this is. But the basics are that Cash App has secured a digital asset license in Bermuda, a place that has seen its fair share of interesting digital assets recently, and is looking to launch something called Cash App World. Jason, what is Cash App World? So I was kind of surprised that this like hadn't been covered more broadly. At totally. least I, I searched and I didn't see that, you know, whatever, Bloomberg had already written about it. <laughs> well, Matt Levine um, might get yeah. to it at some point. So yeah, as you mentioned, Cash App set up a new entity in Bermuda and applied for and acquired a digital asset license, which permits them to basically operate what's functionally a crypto exchange slash crypto wallet, okay. including issuing cryptocurrency. Now, something that I'm kind of curious, having like looked through what the license permits them to do and having read the T's and C's of Cash App World, which you can see on their website, is whether this is going to be something that's Bitcoin-based, which historically Block and Jack Dorsey have been very like Bitcoin-specific rather than you know exploring other cryptocurrencies. The T's and C's of the app itself and the license would be allow for Cash App issuing their own 
digital currency or cryptocurrency. A couple of other interesting elements that provide the context. It explicitly is not available to consumers in the U.S., European Union, U.K., and Japan. And so my interpretation of the asset li- digital asset license and the terms and conditions is basically this is a way for Cash App to quickly bootstrap into almost global availability by sort of exploiting either absent or easier digital asset regulation in other countries. And then you could imagine a world where they issue, you know, Cash App coin or some kind of stable coin that they create themselves that becomes this base layer for peer-to-peer payments on a global scale. It could have an immense amount of appeal in countries that are struggling with high inflation, which I guess is all of us. But sure. I was thinking particularly of like Turkey, Brazil, Argentina, as far as giving users in those countries a place to you know, store their wealth in a more stable-ish asset. And presumably because regular Cash App, so for the other markets, the US, UK, etc., also has crypto capabilities you know, any sort of stable coin or custom crypto they introduce, or if they just use Bitcoin, could then become this base layer between the two, right? So, Mm. you know, I'm Jason living in the Netherlands, and I want to send, you know, value to a Cash App World user in Bermuda, like there presumably will be connectivity between regular Cash App universe and Cash App World universe facilitated by whether it's Bitcoin or some other crypto. So that's sort of my interpretation or guess as to what the strategy here is. And it's interesting. It is very interesting. It is very interesting. I mean, you know, Jack Dorsey is famously very bullish on Bitcoin specifically. And, you know, so I would imagine that the sort of underlying layer to this, I would think would be Bitcoin. Although, again, you know, you see these companies pivot and try to change their strategy. The idea of having that sort of base layer of connectivity, I think is really interesting. I struggle a little bit with the not like specific regulatory risk because obviously they've set this up in Bermuda. They're sort of exploiting the regulatory arbitrage of like working in other regions. They explicitly made this not available to consumers in countries where there's a little bit more of a difficult regulatory perimeter around crypto related stuff. However, you know, at the end of the day, like Block is still a US based company, I believe. And you know, operates in a lot of these countries where this type of uh, activity might be concerning. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen plenty of examples, both in fintech and financial services and outside of it, of companies getting a little bit hung by their ambitions to do other things in other places with the regulators back home, because regulators sometimes will just sort of look broadly at like, hey, what is this company doing? And what do we like? And what do we not like? And so I do think they are taking a bit of a regulatory risk, particularly given that like crypto at this moment is incredibly not something that regulators are happy about, at least in the U.S. Persona non grata. It is. It very much is. I mean, even I would think Bermuda would feel a little burned at this point on all things crypto. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's going to be an interesting sort of regulatory challenge to navigate, particularly given that like, you know, Block or I guess Square now has like a bank charter, right? I was going to bring that up. It's interesting to remember they do have that ILC charter. Yeah. On the one hand, depending on, you know, if anything does ever get passed around regulating stable coins, yeah. it's like, oh, well, you have this bank charter that presumably gives you a leg up on potentially issuing your own stable coin yeah. because you can hold those deposits yourself or work with other trust banks. But on the flip side, as you've pointed out and we've talked about through the show, 
given particularly the fallout at Silvergate and Signature, it's like the signal coming from regulators right now seems to be like, we don't want you touching anything to do with crypto. And if you are, we are going to give you uh, the nth degree of scrutiny. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I and I think your point is well made, though, that like maybe the game plan here is let's set this up quietly. Let's position a couple of the pieces on the chessboard very sort of subtly. Maybe that's not an accident that this hasn't gotten a great deal of coverage out there in the world. So sorry if we're spoiling anyone's plans here. And, you know, I think that maybe the idea is given that all things are cyclical and there will undoubtedly be a sort of resurgence in enthusiasm and openness for crypto related things. I'm not sure what we'll call it then. I guess Web3 is out. Crypto maybe's out, DeFi's maybe out. We'll come up with a new term, I'm sure. But like whatever the new version of this same thing is, maybe when that's more of an acceptable sort of discussion to have, particularly at an infrastructure level, Cash App and Block will be well positioned Mm -hmm. to execute on that. And so maybe it is something to be thought of more in terms of like a 10-year horizon, particularly given that it has global implications and the ability to move outside of the markets that they're currently in and less to do with like trying to extend the Cash App brand today into these new and sort of exotic areas. Yeah, I mean, I will be interested to see how it unfolds. We'll have to check in next year. We will. We will indeed. Um, we didn't prep for this, Jason, but do you have any can't let it goes that you'd like to end with? Oh, man. I did not prep a can't let it go. I'm just going to have to use Echo, which anyone who, who reads the newsletter will be familiar with. But very quickly, basically, the company promised users 25 to 5% APY. Had a very interesting blog post explaining how 95% of people don't need FDIC insurance, which they've since deleted. You can Um, find it on the Wayback Machine, and it's incredible. It is. Basically, it had four categories, but fundamentally, it was either you're too poor for it to matter or you're too rich for it to matter was was basically the four or five word summary. Yeah, yeah. Not a take that's aged well in the age of uh, SVB. And basically, they were telling users that they were generating yield by lending USDC stablecoins to institutions like, I'm making air quotes, Fidelity and Goldman, when in fact they were lending USDC to BlockFi, Wire, Genesis, and DeFi protocols like MakerDAO. At the current moment, they're actually just leaving users' money sitting in Prime Trust, earning nothing, paying that 25 to 5% out of their own pocket, out of their corporate treasury. It's interesting because you can actually get close to 5% in a regular, like, real I was gonna savings say, account. Yeah. So, so kind of the entire like value proposition has been erased by rising interest rates. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that business develops. Got it. Okay, well, we'll leave that one yeah. there. I will just briefly mention, and I will mention this for the rest of time, that all of the VC bros on Twitter who helped to exacerbate bank runs, they're still not stopping, which I find sort of annoying. Like I got it when it was like their money at risk and like we need to do something about this. They seem unwilling to let it go and just sort of admit like, hey, you know, kind of freaked out there. Sorry about that. But like now everything's good. They keep tweeting about bank runs. They keep tweeting about the uh, sort of instability of the US banking system. They have no idea what they're talking about. They have no knowledge of how banks work or the benefits of fractional reserve banking and maturity transformation. And I deeply and sincerely wish that Elon Musk would deactivate their accounts. That's not going to happen, largely because he's sort of friends with these people. But this is sort of my worst nightmare of what Twitter has evolved into. And I'll never be able to let it go for the rest of my life. So that's just going to be my burden that I get to carry with me. And I guess we need to leave it there. We do. I will say one last thing, Jason, which is 
Last time we were going to do a live podcast, I missed our podcast because of a freak snowstorm for which I deeply apologize. Jason, listeners should know, was nice enough, even though that happened, to still give me a gift when I showed up late in Las Vegas, which was Stroop waffles from his adopted country, the Netherlands, which were absolutely delightful. Jason is now handing me a collection of, what is this? It is a bag of coffee from a roaster in Oaxaca in Puerto Escondido. My goodness, this is amazing. Okay, so this actually spoils the whole thing I was going to do because I have a gift for you, (laughs) which is a Huckleberry chocolate bar from the wilds of Montana. Huckleberry is a delicacy that you can only rarely find. And uh, I think you will enjoy this. Nice, thank you. We have gifts all around. John John left early, so he gets nothing. He gets no gifts, but uh, it has been a gift to get to record this podcast live from FinTech Meetup. Jason, we will do this again, certainly next month, and then hopefully in person at the next conference we're at. Can't wait. All right, appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.